Rogues Gallery Uncovered Bad Behaviour in Period Costume A non-judgmental free-for-all into the scandalous lives of history's greatest libertines, Lotharios and complete bastards. This podcast contains adult themes, a touch of colourful language, cross-dressing bears, cave abuse and an Irish accent that some may find deeply disturbing. What are you looking at? Finding any excuse for a scrap with 18th century Ireland's most argumentative bully. George fighting Fitzgerald. Hello rogues and welcome to another episode of The Gallery a week later than I'd planned. I'd love to say that that was because of some outrageously decadent distraction but I'm afraid the truth is that uh, last week I'd just bought a new phone and spent a disproportionate amount of time beside myself with fury and confusion at having to re-sign into all my old apps when I'd forgotten most of my passwords. I am a Luddite, I know. And don't get me started on two-step authentication. Anyway, when I wasn't swearing at big tech, I was feeling the warm glow of some fantastic comments from fellow rogues. Special mention must go to David Smith, who got hold of me via the website roguesgalleryuncovered.com to suggest that I do something featuring the Crusades, a hotbed of religious-based roguery, which I will certainly do. And also to Brad Miller of New Zealand, who suggested Giacomo Casanova, that's going to be a big one, and Marco Polo, who apparently shagged his way across the entire Silk Road. I'd also like to say a big thank you to everybody who commented on the Edward Sellen episode that I put up on YouTube, Lovely words from lots of people that I've tried to thank personally in the comments, but if I've missed any, I really, really appreciated hearing from you. The gallery can be found on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. So feel free to check out my socials and say hello. Right, it's nearly disclaimer time. And while this isn't the type of podcast where I share my opinions about trigger warnings, which might be more nuanced than you think, I was reminded by a friend the other day of this news story from last year, which, if you weren't aware of, you might be interested in. Apparently, the University of Highlands and Islands in Scotland have placed a content warning on Ernest Hemingway's 1952 novel The Old Man and the Sea because it contains scenes of graphic fishing. Now, whether that's still in place or not, I've absolutely no idea. And more importantly, who on earth is traumatised by deep-sea angling. Which leads me, rather clumsily, into this. The following tale is written in the present tense of the period in which it's set, and as such may contain attitudes and opinions of the protagonists and their times which would today be considered unacceptable. As I'm not a psychotically violent 18th century Irish gentleman, or an attendee of 300-year-old public executions, Those attitudes and opinions are obviously not mine. Ireland, 1786. George Fitzgerald is picking yet another fight. This time, it's with the hangman. For once, though, he's got a point. After all, this is the third time today that they've tried to string him up. Convicted of murder, a crowd of 
not-so-well-wishers have gathered at the scaffold to see one of the most unpleasant men in Ireland finally get his comeuppance. Some will mourn the passing of such a colourful eccentric, although relatives of those that he shot, bullied or abused are a little less forgiving. Fitzgerald could start a fight in a nunnery. He'll probably headbutt St Peter at the pearly gates. He's raging at his executioner now, dressed like a scarecrow because his own clothes got ripped to shreds during a fight with his fellow prisoners. I want a decent suit in which to meet my maker, he demanded. So the wardens cobbled together a worn pair of trousers, a waistcoat that to be honest had seen better days, and somebody's old hat. Because of his high birth, Fitzgerald has been allowed to walk to the scaffold rather than be led through a jeering crowd on the back of a cart. Unfortunately, though, when they hauled on the rope to string him up, it snapped, much to his amusement, so he had to wait around for a couple of hours, being jeered at anyway while they tried to find another one. When the out-of-breath jail flunky finally returned, however, it was discovered that the rope that he had brought was actually several feet too long. Fitzgerald just stood there with it coiled around his feet, like some kind of idiot. The crowd were in hysterics. Maybe, though, the third time's the charm. Before he swings, though, I do wonder, does Fitzgerald have an adult brain, or is he just plain evil? He was born into a noble family, but his father, who was also a notorious rake, made the mistake of flaunting his mistress in public. Fitzgerald's mother, understandably humiliated, took the young lad and his brother off to England to escape from her shame. Educated at Eton, Fitzgerald made up for being shorter and less well-built than his fellows by being overly aggressive and quarrelsome. I heard that he fought his first duel at the age of only 16, against a man called Mr French, who it said forgot to bring his powder horn with him and because he couldn't load his pistol, had to borrow one of Fitzgerald's. A rather inauspicious start to a lifetime of fighting. At 17, he joined the army and returned to Ireland as an officer of the 69th. His time in Galway, however, was marred by his now almost obsessive love of duelling. By the age of 24, he'd fought no less than 11 times. On one occasion, he made improper and lewd advances to a local shop girl, outraging her employer. Now, the shopkeeper, not being a gentleman, couldn't challenge the lecherous swine himself, but Fitzgerald said that if he could find a man of quality to take his place, then he'd face him in his stead. The shopkeeper immediately ran outside into the street and stopped another officer of the 69th who happened to be walking by. He must have had his own grievances with Fitzgerald because he immediately agreed to the meeting. The two faced each other with pistols. Fitzgerald's opponent was the better shot. The bullet struck Fitzgerald in the head and he collapsed in a pool of blood. A frantic surgeon cut away a piece of his skull to remove pressure on his brain. During the operation, though, a semi-conscious Fitzgerald loudly berated him for ruining his wig. When Fitzgerald's father heard the news, he was so shocked that in his passion he stabbed a man through the stomach with a sword 
who had simply stopped to offer his condolences. After recovering his composure and presumably apologising to the man, he then wrote his wayward son completely out of his will. Fitzgerald took six months to get back on his feet again and carried the livid scar with him for the rest of his life. I'm no sawbones, but perhaps his injury also affected his brain. In 70, he got married to a beautiful and wealthy woman named Jane Connolly. Believe it or not, he could be quite charming when he wanted to be, and he began to enjoy her £30,000 dowry. His father, by then, had fallen on hard times and asked his son for financial help. Fitzgerald generously agreed to give him £10,000 to get back on his feet, but only if he agreed to pay him an additional £1,000 a year for life and write him back into his will. His father agreed, so he then resigned from the army and moved to France. Fitzgerald endeared himself to French society by gambling most of his money away in Parisian gaming houses, being accused of using loaded dice, slapping the face of a man to whom he owed money, in front of the Queen no less, and running his sword through another chap who accidentally stepped on his dog outside a coffee house. The marriage in tatters, his wife returned to England, broken and penniless. Fitzgerald, though, stayed in Paris, but was forced to join his soon-to-be ex-wife when the future King of France very publicly had him thrown out of a gambling club for blatantly refusing to pay any of his debts. Even for Fitzgerald, challenging European royalty was not an option. So he returned to England and tried endearing himself to London society. He gambled and cheated and refused to pay his debts there too. But the final straw came when he hounded a young man into a duel on Ascot Racecourse. It was the young man, in fact, who had been owed the money, although not by Fitzgerald, and he'd already been reimbursed. But Fitzgerald provoked him by saying that he should have called out the man who owed him, as only a coward waits to be paid. The terrified youth fired first and missed, so Fitzgerald made him stand, waiting for the return shot while he pretended to fix his pistol. He then made the sobbing and trembling boy stammer out an apology before shooting him in the shoulder and walking away. With London loathing his company, he took himself back to France to try his hand at horse trading. While there, he steered another naive teenager into a gambling house run by an old army friend of his called Major Bags. The boy was mercilessly fleeced, but Fitzgerald and Bags got into a disagreement over money, and that could only end one way. The two fought their duel over the border in Austria. Bags accused Fitzgerald of wearing a metal vest, so Fitzgerald stripped to the waist. Both pistols went off, and as the smoke cleared, Fitzgerald raised his second pistol to fire again. I'm wounded, cried Bags. But you're not dead, replied Fitzgerald, and shot him again in the thigh. Fury dulling the pain of his injuries, Bags heaved himself up and blindly rushed at Fitzgerald who took off, terrified across the field, turning only to fling his unloaded pistol into Bags's face. 
Baggs, however, still had a shot left to fire, and taking careful aim, he struck Fitzgerald in the leg. Both men then crumpled to the ground like marionettes with clipped strings. With France joining the growing list of countries that loathed his company, Fitzgerald returned to Ireland, with a brand new limp to add to his fetching scar. Settled back at home, and possibly feeling that in the past maybe he'd been a little too restrained, he gave the imps in his head full rein, and embarked on a life of absolute adult-pated lunacy. Striding around Dublin, he would shout abuse at passers-by, hoping to provoke an argument. Women would have the rings snatched from their fingers. Men would find the wigs plucked from their heads. One of his favourite pastimes was to stand in the middle of narrow thoroughfares so people coming the opposite direction had to walk in horse shit or jostle past him, which would invariably result in a challenge. During one duel, which took place in broad daylight in the centre of town, Cries went up to separate the two swordsmen, but others insisted that the meeting continue, as one would die, the other would hang for murder, and the world would have to suffer two less braggards. As it turned out, neither died, but one did suffer a very serious wound to the arse. Can you guess which? With Dublin loathing his company, Fitzgerald took himself home to County Mayo where he surrounded himself with a homemade militia, assembled ostensibly to defend the area in case of invasion by Napoleon, but who were really just a bunch of hired thugs Fitzgerald paid to bully the locals on his behalf. So hated was he that he took to fox hunting at night to avoid coming into contact with anybody who he'd wronged, which basically was everybody. If he suddenly decided that any of his torchlight hunting companions were his social inferior, which in his opinion was most of them, he had them unceremoniously flogged from the field. He dispatched one of them, Reverend O'Malley, with the words, Go home, you unwieldy porpoise. Most bizarrely of all, he adopted a pet Russian bear that he actually treated better than any human being. The two would travel together by coach, with the bear disguised as an old woman. Halfway through the journey, to the consternation of the other passengers, Fitzgerald would rip away the animal's disguise and demand that they kiss it. One fellow was so traumatised that he leapt from the speeding vehicle, with Fitzgerald's laughter ringing in his ears. Jolly pranks aside, Fitzgerald kept himself busy by instigating violent feuds with all of his neighbours. He accused one of rustling his cattle and the ensuing duel saw the two men rampaging through the town of Castlebar, overturning market stalls as they chased and battled each other from one street to the next. He also took umbrage with a fellow landlord and his family. In fact, such was his enmity that when he learned of the good-natured wolfhound that they kept as a pet, he visited their house, rang the doorbell, and when the dog came to see who it was, shot it dead. This earned him the antipathy of another famous duelist, a lawyer by the name of Humanity Dick Martin. He'd fought over 100 times in his youth and had been known as Hair Trigger Martin on account of his quick temper. A friend of the aggrieved family, he vowed to challenge Fitzgerald the first chance he got, and he didn't have to wait very long. Fitzgerald and his father, you see, still didn't get on, 
After squandering his fortune and his allowance, the ungrateful son wanted even more of his family's money, and he took his father to court in order to get it. The court ruled that the two should live together, which created a domestic atmosphere of almost biblical unpleasantness. Fitzgerald's father refused to amend his will, or hand over more than the agreed £1,000 a year. So George knocked three of his teeth out. When he continued to refuse cash, Fitzgerald chained him to his pet Russian bear. Further refusal saw the old man imprisoned in a dark cave, still chained to the bear. Word soon got out about the elderly gentleman's perilous underground situation, and Fitzgerald was tracked down and arrested. Hair Trigger Martin jumped at the chance to prosecute. During the trial, he mocked, sneered and belittled Fitzgerald so mercilessly that a meeting was inevitable. But it would have to wait. Fitzgerald, despite claiming that his father was one of the worst men alive, was found guilty, fined £500 and sentenced to three years in prison. Two weeks later, though, he escaped by bribing his guards and returned home to find that it had been completely ransacked by all the people who couldn't stand him. Desperate for money, he approached his father once more, who was still washing the cave moss out of his hair. The old man listened to his son's pitiful pleading and reacted as any reasonable man would, by refusing to part with another penny and possibly hinting that he'd rather assist the devil himself. Chastened, Fitzgerald took a moment to reflect upon all the evil deeds of his past. Then he kidnapped his father again, chaining him up in yet another subterranean location. Both men were soon found by the authorities and Fitzgerald was led, still complaining, to a secure prison cell. On his release three years later, Hair Trigger Martin, who never forgot a promise, issued him with a challenge, which of course he accepted without hesitation. Before the meeting, Fitzgerald sent his duelling pistols ahead of him, but the fellow who he'd employed to carry them got blind drunk and didn't turn up. Standing upon the field like a jilted bridegroom, Fitzgerald furiously grabbed a pair of his servant's old pistols, which were so rusty and worn that the trigger took all of his efforts simply to squeeze. The two men faced each other, their muzzles virtually touching. Simultaneously, they fired. Now, in an effort to avoid getting killed, Fitzgerald always adopted a somewhat unique duelling stance. This involved stooping his diminutive frame to offer an even smaller target, and at the moment his opponent fired, reaching out to the muzzle with his hand so that any bullet would have to travel up his arm before it reached anything vital. He missed Martin. Martin hit him. Both remained standing. They fired again. This time both were hit and needed medical attention. Honour therefore was satisfied. Afterwards Fitzgerald visited his bemused opponent as he recovered from a chest wound and he acted as if the two were the best of friends. This may have been because he was out of his mind or that he had found a new and even greater target for all of his fury. Patrick MacDonnell, 
had recently been given command of the Mayo Legion of Volunteers, a position that Fitzgerald believed was rightfully his. In order to oust Macdonnell, Fitzgerald colluded with a crooked lawyer of his acquaintance to cook up a scheme whereby he'd be arrested on trumped-up charges and then killed while attempting to escape. At first, all went according to plan. Macdonnell, along with one of his friends, was arrested, and before he was given the chance to ask, what seems to be the problem, officer? Macdonnell was shot in the head. On seeing this, his companion ran for his life and, outpacing his pursuers, managed to reach the local authorities. Inquiries were made as to the identities of the murderers and it quickly became apparent who they were working for. The scheme and its shadowy architects had been revealed and quickly became public knowledge. With the magistrates hot on his trail, Fitzgerald was finally found hiding in a linen chest under a pile of blankets. The lawyer, the man who did the shooting, and Fitzgerald himself were all found guilty of murder and sentenced to hang. Fitzgerald offered a passionate defence, brimming with righteous indignation, saying that he had not intended to kill MacDonald, it was all the lawyer's fault apparently, and that he'd never actually killed any of the 30 or more people that he'd shot in the course of his dishonourable career. The judge, though, was unconvinced, or he simply hated him, and the sentence was death. They tell me that he drank a whole bottle of port before being brought to the scaffold, which might have explained his bravado. I think he was hoping that he'd be dead by now, but all the messing about with the rope has meant that he's had time to sober up. He's been blubbing and begging for forgiveness for what seems like ages. I do wish they'd got on with it. Oh, there he goes. His feet are a blur as he does the Tyburn jig. Funny thing is, I almost felt sorry for him for a bit, but now that there's no going back and he's choking his life away, his face looks bloody furious again. That's the Fitzgerald that I remember. Watch it though, his feet are flailing all over the place. Knowing him, he's probably trying to kick somebody. I suppose the big question about fighting Fitzgerald is, did the head injury that he received in his 20s result in his frankly appalling behaviour? To be honest, it's a bit of a tough call. If he was suffering from mental illness, then perhaps we can be just a little bit more forgiving. But maybe, as seems more likely, he was just an entitled little bullying shit who deserved everything that came to him. Whatever the truth, you've really got to admire his dedication to ursine fashion and paternal imprisonment. And if you're wondering, by the way, why he never challenged the King of France to a duel after he was chucked out of Paris, let's face it, he challenged everybody else, it was because, as a commoner, the law simply wouldn't allow it. You might also be surprised to learn that after he dumped his first wife, after he'd spent all of her money, of course, he married again, although what became of her after his death isn't clear. It is said that his only daughter, who had been totally unaware of her father's unpleasant exploits, died herself of shock when she read about them in a magazine eight years after his execution. Parents really do fuck you up. Next time on Rogue's Gallery Uncovered. I'm not sure. I was going to do Catherine the Great, but she's such a big roguish subject that I wanted to do some more research on her before I put her in the gallery, so the next rogue will be a bit of a disgraceful surprise. 
However, if you do want to get an advance heads up, then might I suggest that you sign up to the infrequent but fun-packed newsletter by visiting roguesgalleryuncovered.com and becoming a lovable rogue. There is definitely a missive going out to all LRs this weekend and I'll announce the upcoming rogue there. Actually, there is one thing that perhaps you could help me with. As I'm a Brit based in the UK, a lot of my rogues are English or occasionally American. We have had a few French and Spanish ones as well, but most are UK and USA based rogues. I would love to feature some rogues from Asia, Africa, Australia, New Zealand, etc. Spread the disreputable net a little wider, as I believe that roguishness is universal. So if you do have any suggestions, please drop me a line at simon at roguesgalleryonline.com. The address, as always, is in the show notes. And by way of, I think they call it serendipity, I have had a text about 10 minutes ago from uh, a gentleman by the name of Samuel Ayres, hello Samuel, to say, um, I'd like to suggest that you include in your podcast some American rogues, such as Willie Sutton, Adam Worth, etc. Now, thanks for the suggestion, Samuel. That's pretty much just the kind of thing I was looking for, rogues that aren't English, essentially. I've never heard of Willie Sutton or Adam Worth, so I will look into uh, researching them and we'll include those in the gallery later. So be like Samuel, drop me a line and uh, give me some uh, roguish suggestions from uh, Asia, Africa, Australia, New Zealand, or indeed any American rogues that uh, you think I may not have heard of. Clearly, there's loads that I haven't. Right, I'm off now to continue shouting incoherently at digital technology. Have a great fortnight, stay roguish, and I'll see you yesterday. <laughs>